So this past Saturday, Donald Trump posted something on Truth Social that caused me to just gasp. He wrote, 2024 is our final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media. We will evict Joe Biden from the White House, and we will finish the job once and for all. And a year before the election, I'd like to remind listeners that this man, this former president, is echoing Adolf Hitler. And if you don't believe me, go back and read Hitler's words and listen to his speeches. It's the same exact shit. And no matter how badly you feel about Joe Biden's age or, I don't know, Kamala Harris's VP, they will be running against the shadow and words and approach of Adolf Hitler. It is that serious. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Kay Gilman, age 83, who back in the early 1970s was hired as the New York Daily News' first women's sports columnist, and who then spent the 1973 season embedded with the New York Jets in order to write her fantastic book, Inside the Pressure Cooker, a season in the life of the New York Jets. This is episode number 338. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and you're culturally irrelevant. All right, so okay. We're sitting here in your apartment in Southern Florida. And uh, about a week ago, week and a half ago, I'm at an estate sale in Southern California with my wife and son. I don't know the person whose house it is. I just know it's an estate sale. And I see all these books. And one of the books is Inside the Pressure Cooker, A Season in the Life of the New York Jets by you, Kay Gilman. And I grew up a Jet fan. I ask how much the book is. It's a dime. (laughs) (laughs) I buy the book for a dime. And I said to my son, I swear to God, at that moment, standing there in California, my son, whose name is Emmett. Oh my God. Just like your son, his name Emmett, E-M-M-E-T-T. Yes, that's correct. I said to him, how cool would it be if I wound up with this woman on my podcast? And maybe it's 10 days later, I'm sitting here in your beautiful apartment. And I say to you, Kay, the world is small. You're correct. I am, right? Yep. Okay. So here's what I want to start with. You wrote this book in... It came out in 1974, again, Inside the Pressure Cooker, A Season of Life with the New York Jets. And you were also the first woman sports columnist for the New York Daily News. And considering this was early 70s, you had to be one of the first woman sports columnists, period, in America. Um, Where were you in life when you decided to write this book? Like, why did you even decide to write it? Well, I got started kind of late. Um I graduated from Sarah Lawrence. I got married right away. I had kids. I had two children. And I just, I don't know. I just thought I always wanted to be a writer. And I thought, if you're going to do it, you better do it fast or you're going to be too old. So I first worked for a paper in New Jersey, the Asbury Park Press. And then... You were freelance, right? I was a freelance. 
And somebody showed my work to the Daily News. I didn't even know it. A guy who did PR for Monmouth Park, the racetrack. I did not know about it. And uh, they called me shortly afterwards and they offered me the job. I mean, it was, I think once or twice in your life, you have a minor miracle. And that was it. They didn't want to talk to me or interview me or put me up against anyone else. They said, we want you. And I just thought, yes, I'm going to do it. All right. So wait, your dad, Phil, was a, all right, he was number one, a co-president, president of the New York Jets. Yes. He also was a president and owner of Monmouth Park. So, so you had well, these sports Yeah, times. I had a, a very sporty background, actually. We lived in a very small town in New Jersey, which was a town, Oceanport, that had Monmouth Park. And he was actually enlisted by Amory Haskell, who was the founder of it. And he decided he wanted to help out with the track. He ended up being president. He was really in the garment industry. That was his real business. And then his, he made some friends and they ended up buying the New York Jets, which were then called the New York Titans. Right. And, uh, that just was, they bought them out of bankruptcy court. That ended up being quite something that my brother, like boxers, fighters, he had a guy named uh, Buster Mathis and he did a little bit with Ruben Hurricane Carter. You probably know these names from the past. So we were kind of, somehow accidentally became very involved in sports, although I was really not consciously involved in sports, but I grew up around it. I was used to being around athletes, sports people, etc. And then this happened to me. It was really kind of late in life. I was, I think, in my late 20s when I got started. And, you know, nowadays you look around and some of the great American sports writers are women. It's not even a thing. Yeah. Like, are there many, many, many great women sports writers? At the time, when you got hired by the Daily News, uh, 1973-ish, I think, yeah. to be a sports columnist, was a reaction from people you knew? Are you Are you crazy or is it, oh, this is amazing. What a great, cool thing. Most thought this was amazing. They were surprised by it, but... Um I must say, at the Daily News, I did not run into any nasty prejudice or anything. They kind of, the guys there sort of accepted me. You know, if I if I could do it, that was fine. If I couldn't do it, I guess they wouldn't have liked me so much. But uh, I did not have a sexual uh, backlash or anything like that. I mean, very, very, you know, I got some strange letters and all that. <laughs> but from my colleagues... Uh, they were very friendly, welcoming. I, I never had a problem with it. Well, it's interesting because I have a column here in front of me from uh, June 3rd, 1973. And the title is, headline, excuse me, is Nancy Seaver, Winner in Suburban League. It's a piece you wrote. First of all, not just saying this, you're a freaking really good writer. And your lead here was... She comes on like an especially good-looking, typical young Greenwich matron dressed in a tailored beige and brown shirt and skirt combination. Gold chains hang around her, hang around her neck and a shiny straw sombrero perches on her head, hiding the blonde hair tied back in a severe ponytail. She's typical except for the sombrero. Young Greenwich matrons do not wear sombreros. But Nancy Seaver does. That's a touch of California pizzazz that she has imported to Greenwich and brought with her today to New York where she arrives late in a whirlwind of smiles and apologies. And I want to say like beneath the column, you are identified. It says 
It's only natural that Kay Gilman writes on the women's view of sports for the Sunday News. Miss Gilman, a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, grew up around sports. Her father, Phil, was president of the Jets at Monmouth Park Raceway, and her brother, Jimmy, had his own stable of boxers. When asked whether she thought women should have the same rights as male reporters do interviewing athletes in locker rooms, she replied, I really don't see why not. After all, this athlete seems to be able to get a, a tower around themselves before a TV interview. The present rule does put the woman reporter at a disadvantage. Was there a certain, oh, look how novel this is. We have a woman sports columnist. Isn't that kind of quaint that we have her doing this? Was there a sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge to it all? There was a little bit of it, but I, you know, I wrote stories about Nancy Seaver and wives and things, but I also wrote about, you know, women athletes. I wrote about male athletes. I wrote about, they were very good to me at the Daily News. I could write about whoever I wanted to. Um, they, you know, I got lots of, once I got in there, I got tons of letters from agents of, you know, athletes and all that, but I, they, they never stopped me from writing any story I wanted. I mean, I was very fortunate and I did cover, I did cover women's golf. One day they sent me up to a man's golf tournament because the writer got sick, but, uh, they were, I, I was really, I realized now how fortunate I was. I really did get to choose who I wanted to interview. And I would say there were at least as many men as, as women, as it turned out. I want to say, before we get to your book, one of my favorite columns I found pieces is from May 26, 1974. 93-year-old Brooklyn Strongboy. Chains, chains can't hold Mighty Adam. And your lead was, the Mighty Adam has to be seen to be believed. He comes equipped with a medium-length gray beard, a dark suit, and a gold and silver embroidered yarmulke. At the least provocation, he'll strip down to a bare chest and trousers, unleash his flowing shoulder-length hair, which has been hiding under the yarmulke supported by bobby pins, flex his muscles, and go into his act. His act, part of the oriental world of self-defense in Madison Square Garden on June 2nd, consists of driving nails through beards with his bare hands, breaking chains securely fastened around his upper body by expanding his chest and bending oversized nails also barehanded. Not a bad act, wouldn't you say, for the mighty Adam, also known as Joe Greenstein of Brooklyn, <laughs> who on June 27th will be 93. That's right, 93. I'm guessing, considering he would now be about 140, that <laughs> Joel might not be with us anymore. I doubt it. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, I remember it. And I also remembered he had a little wee-wee problem. He had a diaper on underneath his... <laughs> So I'm, re I'm revealing something to you that has never been revealed, but the guy was amazing. I have to say it. Oh, I remember him distinctly. He was, I mean, he was a strong guy. So he had a little urinary tract difficulty, but he was, uh, he was certainly one of my most memorable uh, interviews. Wait, so you go to interview this 93 year old super strong guy who's appearing in Madison Square Garden and he's wearing a diaper because he has a urinary tract issue? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have to That's pretty awesome. That was awesome. He was an awesome guy. What um? What's the most memorable piece you wrote? Top of your head. Dating. I would say okay, Billie Jean King. I was I had wanted to interview her for a long time, and she didn't want to particularly want to be interviewed. She wasn't interviewed much then. She was already, I don't know. But I was at this thing called the Superstars. It's a TV thing mm -hmm. with athletes down in Florida, down here, and she was there, not participating, but they had men and women participating in these things. And anyway, you know, I asked her about the hundredth time if I could interview her and she said yes. 
So we met in the condo that she was um, using. And I just found her a really amazing woman because, you know, not only, okay, was she, she was as an athlete and uh, becoming more and more of a leader to women, but I just found her fascinating because she had been married to a lawyer mm. and they weren't married anymore, but they were still close. And he really kind of told her what she needed to do to make things happen for women in legal sense and just in a way that made sense. Instead of fighting them, joining them, she got uh, very big time sponsors. Philip Morris was one of her sponsors. And um, there were a couple of others that came in and supported women's, you know, women's sports. And I thought she was, you know, she's not just a leader, but she was smart. And she, and I think the husband helped her and she really made this happen because she got the big money. I mean, so many of these women from, you know, early in sports, golfers and tennis, particularly, and they were starving. I mean, they could hardly make a buck and Billie Jean made the difference. She really did. And she was, she was fascinating to, um, to talk to because she was super smart and, you know, she just, she knew how the world worked and she made it happen. This is kind of a weird question, but, um, don't take this the wrong way. I was like one year old, one year. This <laughs> <laughs> makes me. <laughs> I, I, I'm starting to feel that way too, where you get in. Yeah, you'll, you'll get it. Yeah, no, I do get it already. But, um, so back then, could a woman athlete be openly gay or would that just be, was there always a man, a fake husband or a wink, wink or a- At that point there still was, but it was coming out of it. And she did, you know, everybody knew, well, she was married to Larry. They had been friends since childhood. And then at that point, as people on the inside kind of knew that she had girlfriends and that she was gay and there were others that were, but they were still hesitant about it, but it was coming out of when I started or when I really got going, it became less and less of a secret. And I mean, I interviewed Martina when she was very young and I didn't, I didn't know that she was gay, but, uh, you know, I learned pretty soon, but right about that time, I would say in the mid to late seventies, women were much less, uh, closed mouthed about that. Right. But it wouldn't be something I'm guessing you would if you were interviewing Billie Jean King, you would not say to her. No, I don't think I said, I mean, I don't think that was mentioned. I think she was, she was there. She had two main girlfriends. I think she was still with the first one. And she, I don't think that came up, but, but it was known in the sort of sports in group, but then it became, you know, not such an uncommon thing. And I, you know, I think that's all to the good. Right. Wait. So, um, one of my favorite pieces you wrote, August 25th, 1975. Kay rides with mid Ohio sports car racer winner, race winner. Uh, this is a Lexington, Ohio. So it's kind of exciting. You got to go to glamorous Lexington, Ohio for this story. Um, yesterday I covered the Goodrich six hour race at the mid Ohio sports car course, but I didn't observe from the press box or the pits. Instead, I became the first man, woman, or other form of supposedly intelligent life since pre World War II, uh, riding mechanics to write about a race where it all happens inside a car going 135 miles per hour. And an incredible finale to the whole scenario, out of a 63-car field, when it was all over at 10 p.m. last night, I was alive, well, and swigging champagne in the victory circle. Do you remember this well? Oh, yes, very well. First of all, I was friends with a guy. In fact, I dated him a little who was the head of this thing. And he asked me, 
what, a year or so before if I would go on a race. And I thought, this is BS. I will never go on a race. They had two governing bodies and they had not had a, a woman in a car in 50 years or something. So I thought this will never happen. So I said, you know, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Sure enough, the guy calls me a year later and said, it's all set. They're making your, you know, your, your driver's suit. And, you know, it's going to happen at this place when, and I almost fell over. And he was a very smart guy. He was a Princeton graduate still. I really didn't know how to get out of it. So I, I decided, well, I guess I have to do it. So I didn't tell my family. I had three children at that point. My parents would have had a fit. But I thought, I've, now I've got to do it. They're making me do it. They started pu publicizing it. So I didn't tell anybody in my family. I went out to Ohio. I first, when we first got there, he wanted to do a you know, rehearsed you know, kind of ride and all the other drivers are trying to push us off the course. And they did. I was terrified. And the next day was the big race. I have to say, I took a tranquilizer and uh, just one, <laughs> just one, <laughs> the, the strong one. And they dumped me in the car, you know, you'll get it. And actually the most fortunate thing that happened, it was a kind of race, however many hours they split it up between two drivers. So I was with the first driver and then I was going to get out after three hours. And luckily, actually, they have mirrors that go all the way across the uh, front of the car and it fell down on my side. So when we were riding, I said to the guy, so I guess we're going to have to go in and, you know, get a change. I said, no, I'll hold up. I could see that I could hold up the mirror. So I held up the mirror for about an hour and a half and it distracted me. And suddenly I got really into it. I was excited. I wanted to win and I wasn't going to, you know, be a cause of having to go and then change it. So I did. And by the time I got out, I was, I lost about seven pounds. It was very hot. I sweat. You can't believe the sweat. And uh, I was very excited. And then, you know, the second driver got in and we did win the race. So it was the whole thing was amazing. But then I had to go home to New Jersey. And the next morning, you know, I got in very late. And my parents were <laughs> very unhappy. But I said, look, I did it. I'm alive. I got stuck in this. And anyway, it was, that's something I will never forget. And, uh, and I ended up, believe it or not, actually enjoying it. I still can't believe that either, but I did. I think because only because I had something to do and I felt like I was contributing to the whole thing. But I'm really fascinated by something, which is, um, and you wrote about this in, in an article back and then. That was, and that was actually on the, front page of the daily news, the back, yeah, this board's page, the back, whole back page of the daily news. I actually walked into John Lindsay, who was former mayor of New York City a couple of days after that. And I didn't know him. He knew me though. He said, I read that story about you, you know, being in the sports car. That was amazing. So I got a lot of attention for that. Uh, also, actually my parents first learned about it because my father had the daily news and he looked and there was his daughter and they had no idea. They had no, I, no idea. No idea. I was just, I thought if I told them they're going to go berserk and make a whole thing. So I evidently, you know, got into this thing, whether I liked it or not. And I was just going to go do it. And hopefully I would live. I'm channeling your dad right now <laughs> to quote your dad in 1970, whatever. Okay. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> it was just about that. It was very close to that. He was really teed off. Although he, he saw me sitting there. I was staying at their house at the time. So he saw that I was alive. 
and he had this guy from the track who came every morning for breakfast. So they were both sort of sitting there looking at me like I had descended from the moon or something, but it all worked out. I feel like nowadays with the internet, people don't get this thrill, but what was it to have the back cover story of the daily news? Was it the thrill? I imagine? The thrill. That was a huge thrill. I was a huge, huge thrill. And they sent somebody out there to take, you know, pictures of me. And, you know, I thought I would be featured, but I did not expect to have the back page of the daily news. And that was exciting. There's something I love about this all. And, um, I read an article at the time, I think when you were promoting the book and you were talking about, you were a wife, a housewife, and you had three kids Mm -hmm. and you had this degree. You never took a journalism class in college. They didn't have journalism classes. You took writing classes. Writing classes at Sarah Lawrence. And you were doing like charity work. It was kind of, it was almost like typical suburban housewife. I mean, I was, you know, a well off suburban housewife, but I always kind of felt that I wanted to write, that I wanted to do more. And, you know, I was very fortunate, you know, I applied to the Asbury Park Press. They took me, which was great. And, uh, it just seems really the LA news came on. I mean, literally fell in my lap. It's the only time in my life. I think I've had that kind of good fortune. And I thought, you know, you'd be stupid not to do it. How did your husband feel at the time about this? Well, our marriage didn't last. Was it because of that? I think it was a little bit, I, I had a, a strange, I was married when I was very young and then that didn't work out. And I married him. We were from New Jersey. I, we lived down there. I think I just didn't really develop myself as a way in the way I should have. And I was all getting older and I thought, oh, I'm going to do it or I'm, you know, it's going to be too late. So. I think he was, he was a very good golfer. He <laughs> taught me a lot of what I knew about golf when I wrote about golf, but it just, um, I don't know. It was one of those things that, that happened. And I think he, I think he suddenly felt kind of uneasy because everybody was talking about me and what are you doing and why are you doing this? And I just think it was hard on him. And I do understand that. I'm going to channel your ex-husband who has, has he passed as well? No. He's still alive. He's still alive. I'm going to channel him anyway. Where's my martini when I get home? (laughs) Well, he wasn't a martini demander, but you know, um, I always had somebody, a helper. So, um, you know, but I did every, you know, I was a wife and, uh, I think it was a big change for him. I don't, you know, he sort of knew I was interested in it, but then it kind of exploded and, our lives really changed. And I think that was a bit hard for him to take. I just want to say, and I really mean this. Number one, it's a, it's a true honor to be sitting here. Like truly. And I just think you're a badass. And I think like, <laughs> I really do. I think the idea that back in the early seventies, that there's an expectation of what women are supposed to do. And even if you, even if a woman is having a job, well, it's, it's generally going to be a part-time job and your first priority has to be to be home for your husband and to be home for your kids. And for you to be like, no, I, I have this dream. I have this goal. This is what I want to do. And it's a very public job and it's a job that takes time and travel. I just think looking back, maybe you're not impressed with yourself. I just think it's ridiculous how impressive it is. Do you not? Thank you. No, I do. I think I do. I just, you know, I knew I wanted it. And then... You know, I did quite well, but then when this big chance at the Daily News came up and they literally offered it to me, but they didn't even seen me. 
And I just thought, I am so fortunate. I was down at the Kentucky Derby, actually, with my parents. We went to the Kentucky Derby, and I was in a hotel room, and I got this call from this guy, this PR guy from the, who had worked at the racetrack, but he knew everybody. And sports, he said, you know, the Daily News wants to hire you as a, you know, as their sports columnist. I thought he, you know, I was not even serious, but I realized he was, and I thought about it. I was by myself in a hotel room, and I just thought, you know, I have to do this. I want to do it, and I'm going to do it. So, and I told my parents that night. And What was their reaction? I don't think they really, I don't know if they sort of got it or thought it was real, but they they didn't fight me. And I said, okay, you know, they were, they were pretty darn good about it. Um, I don't think they realized the whole overall impact, but it was something I just knew I wanted to do and I was going to do the best I could. And I realized how incredibly fortunate I was to have the Daily News approach me and literally offer me the job without even having seen me. So uh, I was lucky. I was very, very lucky. This is a little bit of a tangent. You would go into the office, sit at a computer, I'm guessing surrounded by cigarette smoke and whatever and grime and sit there and type out your home. I would, or I also would, um, they just wanted me to hand it in and I would come in a few days, but you know, I often did it at home and brought it in and then we'd just, you know, discuss it. And I was very lucky. I had a great, great, sports editor, a guy named Sal Giraj. Most people never heard of him, but for people who worked in sports at that time, they knew him and I adored him and he was great to me. And uh, he was just like, you know, we would discuss, I'd tell him I'm thinking of doing this one and that one. And he would just say, go ahead, you know, do it, do what you want. Right. And he was very encouraging. I was so lucky to have him and a lot of well-known sports writers worked for him and, and they all loved him and we were all so sorry when uh, he left. The book Inside the Pressure Cooker fascinates me for a million different ways. Number one, uh, you obviously had a family tie to the Jets, which mm-hmm. I'm guessing didn't hurt. Number two, you wrote about the 1973 Jets. This is the best book about a mediocre football team ever. Like you, you wrote about a team, obviously it had Joe Namath, who's a mega, mega star. They also happened to finish seven and seven and kind of sucked. It was a terrible year. I did not <laughs> choose the best year, but I chose the year because it was Weeb's last season. You knew it was going to be. No, Weeb. knew. I knew. This it was, is, yeah, the, that was known. Right. So. Weeb was a head coach of Jets. Yes. And I was very fond of him. He was a guy. He was a little dumpy guy. Didn't say too much. He was from the Midwest. He was a Hoosier. And he was very, very smart and knowledgeable about football. But some people didn't realize how smart he was because, you know, he was very low key. However, I think he made, I was just looking at it last night. He made a big mistake by being the general manager too. He wasn't so good at that. And he was doing too, it was just too much. It was starting then that there were two, you know, a general manager and a coach and they worked together, but he had, you know, didn't have it all on one person. And he, I think he overreached in that sense, but he was very, very smart and clever and, and stingy. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I adored him, but. So you decide I want to do this book where I'm basically a fly on the wall yeah. with the 1973 New York Jets. Um, because of your ties to the Jets via your dad, was it relatively easy to get them to agree or was it a 
big sort of deal. Well, one thing, I was so glad that my name wasn't Kay Islin anymore, that it was Kay Gilman. And believe it or not, there were a lot of people there, especially the players, who had no idea that I was Phil Islin's daughter. Many of them didn't know, and I did not push that at all. And I was concerned about standing out too much, you know. Somebody said to me, you know what, you do it for a while, you're there, you be there for weeks and weeks, and they're going to forget, you're going to go into the wall, you know, people won't notice you, you're just going to be part of the scene. And I I wanted to cover some things that were not generally covered in football books, like the fan, the wives, the fans, the, you know, the different people that were not, I didn't want to write about X's and O's and all that, they didn't need me to do that. They, I wanted to make a human story and that's what I did and I and it was true I was very concerned about being oh this is the owner's daughter doing this book and you know she's you know thinks she's special or something but that didn't happen actually they got used to me and I was just part of the scene for for that season so there's a uh, there's a really great photo in the book (laughs) of you standing near a almost with a bemused look on your face with a bare-chested in flip-flops and football pants Joe Namath some people, you know, younger listeners wouldn't know how huge of an iconic figure Joe Namath was. Um, what was he like to write about and to be around? He was a very interesting guy. Um, I knew him from the time he started with the Jets. And, uh, you know, he came to my father's house in New Jersey with Sonny Werblin, who was the president at that time. There are people who are magical people who just have that special something. And he did. Being with the team the whole season, I mean, he was special and he was treated specially that some of the, some of the players didn't like him that much because he, he was always the last one out and he was always the last one on the plane. And, but, uh, I liked him. You know, we had a, a few little disagreements, but it was funny. I think we sort of ended the whole season on a kind of down a downgrade. However, I saw him a few years later and he hugged me and kissed me and so happy to see me. He lives down here, you know, and I see him occasionally and it's, you know, we're very friendly. And so I guess he forgot about being mad at me. Why? Do you remember why he was <laughs> I can't mad at you? I can't remember. I was friendly with his girlfriend too. And I just, that's one thing I cannot remember why he was ticked off at me, but he was. And actually, my first big story, first cover story for the Daily News magazine, which is a big deal, that was him. And it was a very, it was a good story, if I do say so. And we were friendly through most of his tenure there, um, but we did have a few little spats during the the season of the book. But uh, now we're very good friends. He doesn't drink anymore. Um, He's a good person. I feel badly for him. He, uh, you know, dated all these girls, beautiful girls, this one, that one. And then he married a girl who turned out to be a real bitch. I hate to say it. She, yeah. was, she didn't appreciate who he was or what he was and, and treat him well. She left him for some guy on the West Coast. And essentially he had two daughters. The daughters came back very shortly and lived with him. And to this day, I mean, they never went back to their mother. They're both married now, but I see them occasionally. He basically said to me once that he was probably not going to get married until he had all the girls out of his system. And it was pretty late. <laughs> he had a lot of girls to get out of his system. And then I felt badly he married a girl who didn't appreciate him and, you know, used him to get stuff she wanted. And I think he was heartbroken and he's never been married since. And I don't even know if he's had a real tight girlfriend since. 
when you cover someone like that, who is iconic, 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 and he's good looking mm-hmm. and he's a star and he's a playboy and he's at the height of his powers mm-hmm. and you're there for it. And then years later, you see him as an older man and his knees are broken. He has a wife who leaves him. It strikes me as profoundly sad in a lot of ways. What is that to sort of observe? It was sad. It was very sad because he sort of had everything, you know, planned out. He was going to have fun as long as he wanted to have fun. And then he was going to get married and have a family. And he did get married. He did have a family and he loves his daughters. And he's, last time I saw him, he was having dinner with one of his grandchildren and uh, his family. So that was very sad. And I think the drinking thing became sad. But he still, he still got that charisma and he's still special. So, and he's, I think he's quite happy now. He likes living here. He's, he's got a lot of friends. Um, he's still Joe Namath. He still has that thing. He still has that thing. You know, there are not a few people in my life that just have that special thing. And he's one of the very few, like Frank Sinatra. I did several events with Frank Sinatra when I was an event planner and he was just another one. He, you know, the Sonny Werblin, who was president of the Jets, said there are some people who they walk in a room, they change that room. And Sinatra was one. Joe Namath was one. People that I knew. Yeah. Chapter uh, chapter 10. <laughs> Baltimore. We won, but we lost. And you, re- you lead it with Saturday, September 22nd, marked the beginning of Weeb Eubank's homecoming weekend. On the 50-minute plane ride south, he claimed that his last game in Baltimore would be played like any other game to win just as he constantly reiterated that he was approaching his final season as he would any other. All I want to do is win. Anytime, any place, we can do it, he said. Still, he confessed, his hands working more nervously than usual. I have a lot of wonderful memories of Baltimore. We played a lot of great games there. He laughed and joshed with the sports riders who clustered around his customary front row left-hand seat. He put the Monday night Green Bay Packers debacle behind him. We and the coaching staff had worked frantically during this past week to prepare for the Colts, because of the lost day, they had not even gone home after their turn flight from Milwaukee, which arrived at LaGuardia at 4 a.m. Instead, they checked into a motel adjacent to the airport so they could be at Shea to review film at 9 o'clock Tuesday morning. And I want to say, and I mean this sincerely, and that was just a random part I read. It's one of the best fly-on-the-wall books about sports I've ever read. I really mean that. I think it's not just good, great. And I think if that team had won the Super Bowl or even made a Super Bowl, I think we're talking about one of the all-time great fly on the wall reporter travels with the team books, but you just had this sloppy luck of being around a shit bag seven and seven team that nobody cared about. That was, that was unfortunate. And, and we, it being weeps last season was probably the only thing that made it stand out. You know, Joe got hurt, you know, nothing really went right. And, you know, even in Baltimore, I mean, they did, they paid a great tribute to Weeb down there that day. It was very special, but I don't think we even won that game. So it was, that part was sad, but I'm still kind of glad I did it that year. It was just that was special in its own sense. Of course, if they had won, it would have been a blockbuster, but you know, you just, there's so many. I'm still a avid, avid football fan and Jets fan. I'm, you know, stay up at night to watch those damn games. But, um, Can we agree? Yes. Can we agree? This Zach Wilson thing is not going to work. I, I agree. It's I don't and I'm kind of surprised a that they took him because they could have taken, you know, they well they couldn't they were number two they couldn't take Trevor Lawrence. Trevor yeah. Lawrence. But I just don't think it's, it's he's in his third year. He just 
He doesn't have any. Just whatever it is, he doesn't have it. He also doesn't have a good offensive line, but still, you, I don't think he's got the, no, he just doesn't have the. He's no Namath. No, he's no Namath. He's no Ken O'Brien. No, he's no Ken O'Brien. He's, he's no Ray he's Lucas. No, he's no Ray Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> no, he just, I'm surprised they've held on to him. This only, well, of course, it wasn't their intention this season. The intention was to t- put him in the background and we were going to have, you know, the great Aaron Rodgers and that was a tragedy that no one could have foreseen. So I've always maintained that the butt fumble was the most jet thing ever, but I think Aaron Rodgers getting hurt yeah, on his fourth snap. Back, well, that was pretty good. That's right up there. I mean, I was so, sh- uh, you know, I was so shocked I could barely speak. Then all my friends are going, look what happened. Did you see that? And I said, yes, of course I saw it. It was just, you know, I will all have to wonder what would have happened, you know, if he had been able to play, you know, because we brought so many people in. And defense is amazing. Day. Yeah, the defense is really good. And then to have this pathetic offensive line and sometimes you can't help it, you know, they guess they all got sick or they're psycho or whatever. And, but I, th- I have to agree with you. I think even if, um, even if our quarterback had a good offensive line, I still, I just don't think he would be a great player. I think he would be, he's getting teeny bit better, but I don't think he's got what it takes to really. Yeah. When you worked on this book, so it's a lot of, it's actually interesting. You have the, uh, you have the roster in front of the book, which I love. And, you know, Namath wasn't the only name that mattered. I mean, there were guys, Jerome Barkham had a long career at the Jets. Emerson Boozer was obviously was still a, there. He was a great guy. He was a good friend. Winston Hill was there. It was great. Burgess Owens. He was so attractive and brilliant. And, you know, he he's a politician now. Not one I enjoy. You know, <laughs> but he is real. I'm not really surprised because he kind of was electric, you know, electric, very talented, very serious. Um, and you had John Riggins. Oh, my God. What do you remember about Riggins? Oh, well, I remember his, I remember his red skin haircut, you know, um, um, tattoos. Uh, we wore Indian looking clothes. He was, I think he was a very super sensitive guy. You know, he was, he was just, he was so talented. I mean, he was super talented, but, you know, he was, he was different way. You know, you just couldn't predict what he would do but he was you know of course then he went to the Redskins for years and was very successful there yeah he and we we were sort of on different planets (laughs) and and he of course when he came back to the team he looked so completely weird which he liked but he was a special especially talented guy wait so I gotta admit I'm a little surprised by this if, if this is true here you are at the time you're a young woman in a world where machismo reigns and there are very few women. You're probably the only female reporter these guys see all year. And you're a fly on the wall with this team all year. They didn't hit on you at all. There was nothing, 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 nothing. Someone accused me years later of having an affair with Burgess Owens. And I laughed. I mean, he was very attractive and he had a love, a very beautiful wife. And he was not interested in me, nor I was interested in him other than saying, wow, this guy's smart. I'm hearing regret from Kay. I'm hearing regret. Maybe I should. No. (laughs) Truth. I will be honest with you. No, it just didn't. It happened. I just sort of, the one thing the person told me was true. Just hang in there. Do your thing. Be quiet. You know, and I asked them different questions. I mean, I wasn't asking them about X's and O's and this play from, I was asking them personal things. 
and how they felt about personal things. And I think they kind of enjoyed it. And they didn't, ex- didn't expect me to uh, get into football with me, but they like talking about their person, their personal likes and dislikes, their families. Some of them, Winston Hill was very religious. So I just thought, I'm just going to approach it as a person and not, you know, not, not try to show how much I knew about football or didn't know. So you got really good reviews. The book came out. It got great reviews. Publishers Weekly said, unusually sensitive sports book, honest, even when it hurts, superb locker room glimpses of the players and officials. But my favorite is from Marty Glickman, the old TV announcer who wrote or said, the most candid appraisal of a lackluster football season by an interested observer I've ever read. That's pretty great. He was a good, Marty was a great guy. He had been a sports writer for years. I mean, he was the kind of guy who never looked older, but he was very older, but he was very bright. And that, I appreciated that, uh, that comment. They uh, noticed me. I mean, I was trying very hard not to be noticed. And at the end of the season, they kind of accepted me as one of the guys in a sense. Is it true you wrote this book longhand? Yes. That is okay. I'm just going to be blunt. That's fucking insane. You literally wrote like a 90,000 word book. Yeah. By pen. Yeah. I hired a woman down in Jersey um, who was a very good secretary. I would write this and God, I don't know how she did it, you know, because I would make changes all over the pay, you know, and somehow she got it. She got used to me. And that's true. And now I, after that, I learned to type. But You didn't know how to type? No, I, I knew, babe, but I wasn't good enough. And I wrote the whole thing by hand, you know. All these years later, so we're looking at... Now I type. <laughs> now you type. That's good to know. Now we're looking at 49 years since this book came out. So, we're, you know, we're coming up on the big 50th anniversary. Oh, my God. Well, maybe. <laughs> do you look back at it with... Um, well, first of all, do you ever look back on it besides when some random reporter shows up at your house? And do you look back at it fondly or how do you feel about it all these years? Fondly. I, it was special. It was very special. And I... I'm very glad I did it. I never was sorry that I did it. I I learned a lot, and uh, it was a special time in my life. And uh, I'm, I think it certainly was one of the top achievements in my life. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, oh, that's the name of the podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my dad, Stan Perlman, who's wearing a throwback Herschel Walker New Jersey Generals jersey from RoyalRetros.com. Dad, I'm confused. Why Herschel Walker? You know, there just aren't that many Jews who play professional sports, so I wanted to support one of our greatest. Dad, Herschel Walker's not Jewish. Herschel Schmoyle Walker, he most certainly is. I went down to Wrightsville, Georgia in 1977 to attend his bar mitzvah at the Wrightsville Ramada. Pickled herring was served, wonderful time. Dad, maybe it's senility, but Herschel Walker definitely isn't Jewish. He's Christian, he loves Trump. He thinks the earth is flat. Why ruin an old man's dreams? So here's my question for you. I did a big like newspapers.com search on you. And from a certain period of time, there's K, there's K, there's K, there's K. A lot of K articles. And then vanish, like vanish. And it seems like you just kind of left journalism. And I was wondering why. Well, there are a couple of reasons why. One was at the news for years, I had Sal Girage, who really just was the most wonderful editor. 
and he left and well he was sort of made to leave and there was a new regime dick young and he sort of saw me as, you know as you know a girl right you should write about girls and all of this and at the same time um i became friendly with a woman who owned a special events company and i also felt a little bit like you know after five years i tell you do i mean he let me write about everybody. And, you know, while there were a few new ones coming along, I kind of felt I had covered that field and I loved it at the news and particularly when Sal was there, I was, I was very, very privileged. But when Dick Young came in, frankly, we were not a matched, well-matched pair. He, he asked me to write about his girlfriend who was a boxing promoter. Is that true? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Wait, Dick Young, I have to say, so I'm friends with a uh, pretty friendly with Jay Horowitz, who's the Mets mm-hmm. PR guy for years and years and years. And we've had discussions about Dick Young. Dick Young predates me a little bit. Um, I hate to speak totally ill of the dead, but I don't really hate it that much. Um, He he sounds like an asshole. He was an asshole. He was an asshole, a real SOB. And he wanted to put me in my place. Because you were a woman. Because I was a woman. He, you know, didn't want me to do, have the choice of stories that I did have. And, you know, the nerve to ask me to write about his girlfriend, who was an ugly bitch anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So you did not write that story. I did write it. Oh, you did? Was the headline Ugly Bitch, Dick Young Girlfriend? I don't know. I somehow did it, but I thought, you know, this is the <laughs> intro to me leaving. And um, I had done a little work for this the, this woman that I knew who did very interesting special events. And I just kind of thought, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to say goodbye to the sports world. I mean, I always would care about it and do something different with a little more scope to it. So I did. I mean, you know, I did very, I was, we were two little, we were both two short women and we did big events. I mean, big, big events and interesting, you know, so I'm glad I did that too. And I did that for about 15 years. I mean, we did Frank Sinatra appearing in Egypt at the pyramids. That was gigantic. We did Liberty Weekend. We did reopening of Radio City Music Hall. That's just a few. We did a lot of Interesting stuff. Wait, what goes into planning Frank Sinatra doing Egypt? It's a good thing I was I was not quite forty. It's a good thing I was young because a lot of non-sleep. But I mean, we did. We had a, we brought a whole orchestra over from England and a plane and, and a whole another plane with their equipment. Um, we shut down the the path in front of the pyramids for a few days, which we had to talk to the Egyptian government about because they said, well. The population is going to be terrible. It's just going to be terrible. So we didn't even, I sort of, what do you mean? Well, they don't have the, you know, the, the pyramids. They don't have the path in front of the pyramids. What are they going to do? They're going to populate. <laughs> so it was a fascinating thing. I mean, we just, we did a three-day event over there. We had planes bringing in people from America and Europe. And, you know, we had jewelers coming in. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I ran the press. We had, we had about a hundred press in there. And then my partner ran, you know, other parts of the event. And I was Sinatra. He was nice. He was good. I mean, he was always nice to us. He had, but he had his own wicked, <laughs> Mickey Rudin, his manager. Yeah. And he was a tough guy. He got into a fight with my partner right in the beginning. So I had to take him over. And I said to him, I will never lie to you. I will never lie to you, but you have to believe me and, you know, don't fight me. So we actually ended up getting along, but he did all the nasty stuff for Frank. Got it. 
But uh, it did work out when he saw that it was working out. I mean, he threatened, you know, I'm going to take Frank out of this. He's not going to do it and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he did it. And then, okay, here's the weirdness of it. 1974, Inside the Pressure Cooker comes out. 23 years later, Kay makes her literary comeback with the book, The Savvy Women's Success Bible, How to Find the Right Job, the Right Man, and the Right Life. I don't even know. I don't really know how to address this, but explain. <laughs> I can show you one. I had a friend who had, who had been a vice president at Colgate, a woman, the first woman vice president at Colgate. And she wanted me to do something with her. You know, I would do it from the vantage point of a woman who ran a small company. And of course, she was at Colgate, which was, you know, a huge company. And it was pretty good. I mean, we, it was very, very hard. She, uh, you know, she wasn't easy to work with. <laughs> It was very hard. Is but he I still with us? Yes. He's still with us. I can show you one if you want to see it. But um, anyway, we did it. You know, we got it done. And we were actually, believe it or not, nominated for one of the, the best books of that year. But we were against this. Um, oh God, you know, those ones, you know, were very famous. We did not win. That's what we tell you. Oh, God, I can't remember. I lost all it comes to me, I'll let you know, but you know, very, several, two very famous books we were going against. So I was actually sort of honored to be in the competition and we didn't win. And it was, it's a pretty good book actually. But the funny thing was we were writing and thinking that young women would read it. You know, you're coming out of college and it would tell you how to get started and what not to do and to do and things. But when we started publicizing it, it was mostly women who were older, who were divorced or, you know, left needing to get a job. And when we did our book tour and everything, most of the women there were in their thirties rather than I was picturing, you know, early twenties. And right. it was very, that was interesting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And it was cool. Did you ever sort of, as you went on in life and got further and further away from journalism and from writing, um, did you ever find yourself missing the buzz or the excitement or the just thrill of writing something and seeing it published? Or was it such a distant part of your existence? You never thought of it. No, I did feel sorry. And I, as I told you, I've, I did write about 60% of my life. And then I, I didn't finish, haven't finished it. I really, you're making me feel like I really should finish it. There's still some interesting stuff there. You know, you, you've lived it and you think, well, was it really interesting to anybody? But, I think it would be. And then I had health issues this last uh, about a year and a half and I just didn't have the oomph. But I know, I mean, I've never had writer's block. I mean, I can know I can do it if I really make myself sit down and do it. I just, um, I need to mind feeling a little better, but I I think I could do it. And I, I do miss writing. I'll always... It's always my favorite thing, and I I, sh- I should do it a bit a little lazy. I, st- I always think about something with with especially with older books, and again, like I see your book selling for ten cents at an estate sale, and it was probably someone who died and left yeah. behind all these things. And I find so I'm fifty one, mm-hmm. and I find uh, it's nice to hear that. I said <laughs> I'm a kid. Um, I do find aging super weird. And confusing and things like an old book, like a book selling for 10 cents, not because it sells for 10 cents, 
but you, you know, you look in the pages and the pages are yellowed and a lot of the people you wrote about are no longer with us. And it, it gives me certain sadness. And I wonder if you ever feel that, or if that's not as you age, do you just kind of roll with it? Well, it is. And I have rolled with it, but I, you know, I still feel there's one thing I want to do before I check out is write, finish this book. And I, you know, a lot of it is done. I have to really go over it again. It would be a lot of work. I mean, I, I wish somebody would shut me up in a, <laughs> some place and say, finish it. I think it does. Have, finish it. Finish it. If somebody is urging you to do it, it uh, makes you. more anxious to do it. That's literally my only regret is that I haven't finished this book. And uh, that's in your control. That's under my control. And I have to be the one to, you know, you know, writing, it's a very singular thing. You've got to make yourself do it. You seem to be very skilled at that because you've turned out. That's because I have no life. You probably have a more interesting life than I do. Therefore, I don't know what I listen. I am. I must admit I'm 83 years old. I'm not a kid. And, um, so you, it's easy to make excuses, but I, I know I should do it. We'll see. I am required on this podcast to always finish with the last question. I don't know if you'll like it. I don't even know if you'll have an answer, but I always ask, I usually ask sports writers who are still active, but that's okay. And it could be event planning. It doesn't matter. <laughs> What's the best confrontation you've had in your career sort of life with a client or an athlete or whoever? I've had many. Um, we had this client when I was in the event planning business named Abe Hirschfeld. He was a horrible guy who, uh, who actually owned the Daily News for about five minutes, or the Post, New York Post for about five minutes. And we, he hired us. He was building a, a tennis thing in New York, you know, tennis, and then tennis wasn't going so well. So he wanted to make it into a gym, but he was just horrible and he wouldn't pay us. And uh, he wanted us to do all this stuff. And so I finally, um, was in his office one day and he was, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, this is it. You know, I've had enough. And I walked out of his office. So he, I went down to the street. He followed me on the street. He's begging me, come back, come back. All these people thought maybe we were lovers having a fight or something. Come back. I'll pay you a check. I'll give you the money. And uh, I didn't come back. Did not. <laughs> no. <laughs> we had had it with him. But uh, that's one I I don't know. It sort of popped into my head. I mean, I've had many crazies, but that was. Uh, you seem like someone who doesn't take shit from people. I don't. I mean, I. I think I'm fair and I'm, you know, I try to get along with people. And I mostly always have, but if they push me past a certain point, no, that's it. So uh, I don't think I'm difficult, but I'm, I'm also not going to take shit from them. I just want to say lastly here, I didn't even mention this at the beginning. The weirdness of sitting here in your apartment, not only is the fact that 10 days ago I saw your book in a state (laughs) sound, Southern California, but I had my son Google you or he Googled you shortly after. 
And there had been an article written about you like five days I earlier. Know, that's weird. There hasn't been an article written about me in a long time. But the local there's paper. a woman. Yeah, this woman in the, writes for the local paper. It's actually she's a very good, a very good writer. We had talked about it a few times, and then she said, "Come on, I'm really interested in you, and I want you to do it." So I said, "Okay," and uh, she did a really nice job. It's funny. That's a first article that's been written about me in a long time, and I was. You know, I think she did a very nice, yeah. really nice job. And she's a, a great person. But And I admire her, her work. She does a lot of stuff for the, the paper here that's really quite extraordinary. It's just kind of random that I see your book. Yeah. We Google you. <laughs> There's an article on you. I find your phone number. I text you. <laughs> I and here we sit. And my parents live nearby. And I just happen to be here. And yeah. here I sit. It's crazy. Well, I want to say something about you. I'm very impressed with you. I think you're super smart. You're everything. I, no, I, I don't know. I just kind of knew when you, I get these feelings. And when you contacted me, I thought, I do want to meet this guy. Have I disappointed? No. No. Okay. <laughs> no. You're everything I thought you're, you're oh. extraordinary. That's true. And I'm really glad I did this. And, uh, can you do me a favor? Can you not tell my wife that I wore the Mickey Mouse sweatshirt uh, that I bought at uh, Target about five years ago? Can you make sure I'll, that she... I'll, I'll try to control myself. Thank you. If she should ask, though, I don't lie. <laughs> no. Yeah, thank you. Um, You're a special guy. Oh, it's such an honor to be here, and I really appreciate you doing this, so thank you so much. I want to thank today's guest, Kay Gilman, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Kay, well, nowhere really. She's just a cool-ass former writer living her best life. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang... Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd really appreciate it. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding. <laughs>